Emily, Father, we do thank you so much for Sam. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for the word that you've implanted within him. And we thank you that you are in him. And as he shares that we're going to hear from you. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a life-giving word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help all of us to be receptive to what you want to say to us this morning. In your name. Amen. Bless you, Sam. Thank you. Good. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, great. Um, I want to start by... Oh, am I quite loud? I'm always, the problem is, is that I've got a bigger voice than most other people. So when I use the microphone, it just boom. Hello. Um, it's my way from compensating for my otherwise lack of presence. Um, so um, I wonder for you, what's been like a really significant... If I said significant spiritual high point in your life, um, I wonder what would come to mind. What's the, been like the best spiritual high? And maybe for some of you it would be like, oh, a teenager, massive worship gathering, and everything's really exciting and new, and you feel the presence of God, and it's like awesome. Or maybe some of you it will be like a, an amazing moment of healing or transformation or someone you know and love seeing a breakthrough in their life or something like that. Um, but I wonder what it would be. And the exciting thing is that today, Paul is going to show us his highest spiritual moment. Are you ready? It's going to be very exciting. Paul the Apostle is going to let us in on like what he would say is his number one spiritual high point. Are you ready? Well, you all look very excited. Um, have we read the pa- We haven't read the passage yet, have we? That's great, because that means I can do that and I can talk less. Um, uh, so we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, for those of you that have a Bible. If you don't, we're still in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, and I'm just going to read verses 1 to 10 together, and then we'll chat it through. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, if you haven't got that point yet. I was, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Not a danger this morning for me. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. But he said to me, a verse that we've already heard this morning, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Okay, so uh, let's begin. Paul's spiritual high moment. Are you ready again? Still ready? You were all ready a minute ago. I don't know why you'd have stopped being ready or gone somewhere else or something like that. Um, so I must go on boasting. Blah, blah, blah. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now he says, I know a man in Christ, but he's talking about himself. Very good. Uh, it's kind of this other person because he doesn't want it to be like, oh yeah, I was caught up, but he's making a point. He's talking about his own experience 14 years before where he had this ridiculous, crazy experience um, I was where he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, if you search third heaven on YouTube, which I don't recommend, you get all sorts of whack about <laughs> what might the third heaven be and how high above the first and second heaven was it and how much of a spiritual experience do you need to have to get to the first heaven and then you're going to go up the elevator and get to the second heaven and then but if you're the creme de la creme, you get all the way up to the... Like, don't bother doing that to yourself. That's not the point. The point is really super kind of elevated um, experience of the Lord, super... Um, high, as it were. Now, we read this kind of thing, and we're like, man, wouldn't that be awesome? Has anyone had that exact experience, where you were caught up to the third heaven, and you had visions and revelations from the Lord? Where it was in in the body or out of body, I do not know. Like, it was so super amazing that I don't even know if I was there. Or if it was like this other experience thing. Um, I heard inexpressible things. Things that I cannot even relay to you because they were so high and so spiritual. And we kind of look at that, don't we? And we think, man, that would be awesome. If I had an experience like that, I wouldn't have any doubts in Jesus for like maybe the next week and a half afterwards. Like that would cover me really well, that kind of experience with God. And the thing is, when the Corinthians will have heard Paul talking like this... They will be thinking, wow, that is what we want in a leader. Paul, why didn't you tell us that when you started? You see, Paul's been trying to establish his kind of credibility as a leader with the people in Corinth. And the people in Corinth loved these amazing spiritual experiences. They loved people who had amazing spiritual gifts. And they loved loads of prophecy and tongues and all this kind of stuff that showed that you were really in tune spiritually. So when Paul wrote this to them, they'll be hearing it and thinking, Paul... This is your book deal sorted. You should book it. You get a preaching tour. Now we're going to trust you. Now we're going to listen to you because you've had the spiritual experience. Third heaven. Imagine that'd be a good book title, wouldn't it? Third Heaven Ministries International. You could, you could do so much with that. But of course, he can't say anything about it because he heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. But there you go. Um, so, so at this point, they'll be thinking, yes that's a proper Christian leader. That's what being spiritual really looks like. But Paul makes a big mistake at this point, doesn't he? He doesn't stop talking. A mistake I make very frequently. He's not done. Instead, he goes on to tell them about another spiritual experience. But this time, it's a little bit different. Remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to establish his credibility with the church, but he's trying to also shape their thinking about what being a Christian is all about. So he tells them this amazing high mountaintop experience. And then he says, I had another one too. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, an angel messenger of Satan. Now, (laughs) 
<laughs> if you're trying to establish a credibility with a church about your authorization to lead them spiritually, telling them, by the way, I've got this demon that follows me around, might not be the best way to lead, right? But Paul, <laughs> Paul seems determined to undermine what he's just told them. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to push against me, to beat me is basically the word that's used. Um, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. Now, there's been as much debate about the third heaven <laughs> as there. Uh, as much as debate as there has been about the third heaven, there has also been about what is the thorn in the flesh. If you probably asked your neighbor, they would probably have some kind of an opinion. Um, if they're from a very reformed, conservative evangelical background, it's sin. Um, I, <laughs> but, uh, but it's probably not actually sin that he's talking about. But basically, um, you know, in the first vision, he was like, was it in the body or was it out of the body? I do not know. The impression here is this is a deeply felt, fleshy, earthy experience. Whether it's like something in his body, maybe it was an illness that he couldn't shake, uh, maybe it was a pain, maybe it was a way of thinking, maybe it was anxiety, maybe it was stress, maybe it was just the reality that he lived most of his life being beaten up by different people um, that really maybe got to him after a while. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, and here's the thing, if, he, if we needed to know, he would have told us, right? Like, he could have said, oh, by the way, I mean this. And he doesn't quite do that. So what's the point? What's the point? The point is that he is led to this deeply unpleasant experience. Where the first one was super pleasant, this one is deeply unpleasant. Where the first one was really awesome, this one is deeply painful. Where the first one is like, whoa, elevated, otherworldly, this one is deeply present, deeply everyday, deeply felt, and deeply kind of here, deeply real. Now, wouldn't you love that kind of spiritual experience? Anyone volunteering for this? And yet, here's the interesting thing. Which one is it that for Paul is the most precious? Huh? It's not the first one. It's the second. It's not the experience of elation in the third heaven that brings Paul to a position of spiritual maturity, is it? It's the second where he hears the voice of Jesus calling him into a totally new way of thinking, of seeing the world, of living life. Isn't that incredible? That's basically my point for today. We, could, <laughs> we can pretty much stop. Everything else I say, we're just going to be exploring this idea that is in those moments of most pain where as a tree you fall over, <laughs> where the fruitfulness can begin to happen, where the grace of God can begin to move in our lives. That's what he's saying. Now, um, <laughs> I was, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. In the 1970s and 80s, um, uh, one of the guys that I listened to, uh, his audio books, he was, he's a, a kind of a monk type person. And he was just starting to do some chaplaincy work in the 70s and 80s in the States. 
And he started doing some chaplaincy work in a hospital where they had a very serious rehab unit, a very like intense rehab unit um, for alcoholics. And these guys were like Vietnam veterans, like they come, they have these awful experiences, and they come home and they turn to alcohol, and alcohol was like completely decimating their whole lives. Like they'd lost their family, lost their friend, they were on the streets, like it was really at the point of total breakdown that they could access this unit. Um, But the unit had a weird initiation rite that you had to get through to join the unit. So when you come in for your first ever meeting, uh, you have to learn, you have to then pass the initiation. And the initiation looks like this. Imagine a hall just a little bit smaller than than this with a hundred chairs around the edge. And all the existing members of the unit, all these recovering alcoholics, sit on those chairs around the edge and they look at the floor like this. No eye contact. No one looks at you. And then there's two chairs in the middle, one with your interviewer, who's one of the men who's recovering, and then one for you. And you go and you sit on one of the chairs, and this guy looks at you. Now, <laughs> I need to use a word in this story um, that is, that for the sake of this morning, um, I will use the word bull pit. Um, and you can infer from that what you will, because um, I don't want to lead anyone astray. Um, I love bull pits. Uh, so... Uh, you sit on the chair, and the guy across from you looks you in the face and says, what do you love the most? You see the guy, like most guys in this position, fidget for a bit, and then say, my wife. At which point, everyone around the edge of the room (laughs) looks up and shouts, ball pit, and then looks back down at the floor. Now, you can imagine the guy being (laughs) a little bit shaken by this. The the interviewer asks again, what do you love the most? Maybe this time he'll say, my family. And they all look up and they shout, ball pit! And look down at the floor again. Until eventually he's asked the question, what do you love the most? And he says, alcohol. And it's like there's nothing left. All his defenses are completely gone. All his wanting to even deceive himself about what was really going on in his life is totally gone. He's in this position of total weakness and total kind of nakedness in the group. And at that point, everyone in the room stands up to their feet and they give him a standing ovation. And they whoop and they cheer and they celebrate and they shout for ages. And then they all line up in a row in front of him in dead silence Look him in the face, and each one individually gives this guy an enormous hug. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Because it recognizes something, doesn't it, that basically the only point that we can genuinely access healing is the point where we come to the end of ourselves. The point where we admit, I cannot do this anymore. Like, I can't, um, I can't be anything. I can't do anything. And we all know that this is true about our own lives, don't we? We all know this. We know that the points where we've grown the most spiritually with Jesus are not the points where life is easy and we're sitting by a swimming pool in Malta. (laughs) We'd love that to be the times that we grow the most spiritually, but it's not. The times where we grow the most with Jesus are the times where we meet our own brokenness and we stare it head on And we say, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. Take it away from me. And he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's true, right? We're all on board. 
Now, the Corinthians don't like that, but it's true, it's true, it's true. Um, I, uh, in my sabbatical, I really enjoyed journeying with Ezekiel, the prophet, um, who's a little bit of a wacky sabbatical guy to journey with, um, kind of lying naked in front of things. And Oh, there was that Isaiah. Maybe that was Isaiah. But anyway, he's a bit of a nut job, um, but amazing. And Ezekiel has these encounters with the presence of God. So like in chapter one, you know, there's this amazing vision. He's in exile, but he sees the vision of this chariot of God. And it's got these wheels within wheels within wheels, at which point most of us kind of we just glaze over and try and get to chapter three where the action starts. Um, but it, these amazing visions of God. And then at the end of chapter one, he, he kind of he, he says... Um, he saw the Lord, and the Lord's radiance was like, oh, it's beautiful imagery. It says that the Lord's radiance was like a rainbow on a rainy day. Isn't that a lovely image? That seeing God was like seeing a rainbow on a rainy day. And then it says, and I fell face down, and I heard him speak. I fell face down, and I heard him speak. Like you have to fall face down first. Does that make sense? And then the, 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 the amazing stuff can happen when we're lying flat on our faces on the floor. But then, amazingly, God doesn't leave him there. See, God's desire for him isn't just that, yes, you're right, you stay on the floor, little Ezekiel, where you should be because you're a puny little Ezekiel. Um, that's not God's intention at all. But God actually says, Ezekiel, now stand up to your feet. And he puts his spirit in Ezekiel and raises him to his feet. Now, this is a pattern that happens a surprising amount of times in the book of Ezekiel, so far as I can see. But it also happens the whole, way, the whole rest of the way through the Bible. That there's something in us getting to a place where we're on our face before God. That's, that, that's then where he can say, right, I'm going to lift you up. And you can't experience being lifted up by God unless you first fall on your face. Ezekiel wouldn't have known what it was like for the spirit to raise him to his feet without first being ready to be like, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. My righteousness is filthy rags. I've got nothing before him. Does that make sense? Um, Yeah. So then he says to me, (laughs) and Paul got to this place of nothingness, didn't he? Three times I pleaded with the Lord. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This is not something that Paul enjoys, this experience. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, listen, this is something interesting that Paul is doing. At the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, is he's kind of drawing our theme back to the beginning of the first letter that he sent to the Corinthians all that time ago. Power and weakness and grace and Christ. So if we look back at uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we're just going to look at something. Because this is a pattern that Paul sees the whole way through the gospel message. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, this is when Paul is writing to the church when he's first heard about all the issues that they're facing um, as a community. And he knows 
that there are loads of problems in the church, right? He knows there are behavioral problems, there are status problems, there's infighting, there's drama, it's like a soap opera, it's like mental. Um, And he's like, okay, where do I begin with these people to try and reshape their thinking about what it means to be a follower of Christ from the ground up? And he begins by talking about the whole message of the gospel. Funnily enough, the gospel seems like a good place to start. So he says, um, in verse 18, he says this, Um, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see that? That word power coming up here. Um, As it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Um, And then if you go on a little bit. We preach Christ crucified, I'm in verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the of God is stronger than man's strength. So chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I'm trying to do a parable of that this morning. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, see above, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. Do you see? Do you see where Paul begins with them? It's like, think about weakness and think about power and think about how in the gospel, Jesus completely defines what it is to be successful spiritually, that what it is to be uh, like God, what it, what it is to be a Christian. See, to the Corinthians, spirituality was all about being impressive. It was all about being powerful. It was all about being skilled. It was all about having the right gifts. It was all about being rich and showing uh, your success through that and all about being successful. But to Christ, spirituality, spirituality is from the beginning about vulnerability. It's all about the brokenhearted. It's about being restored by the God of all comfort. So when we think at the message of Jesus, it's no wonder, is it? Who are the people who come to Jesus and experience new life? (laughs) It's all the broken. It's all the people who are going through the worst possible moments in their lives. It's the people who've screwed up. It's the people who are messes. It's the people who are hurting. It's the people who don't know what to think. It's the people who are, I guess, like me. It's the the screw-ups. It's the ones who can't shake things. It's the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the scoundrels, the swindlers. Swindlers? Use the word swindler. It's good. And so when Jesus said, blessed are the poor... Blessed are the poor in spirit. He wasn't joking. He really meant it because it's the poor in spirit who are the ones that are equipped to look at Christ and say, I've got nothing except my weakness. And he says, great, now we can talk. But all the people who think that they're strong, all the people who think that they're sorted, and all the people who think they've got it made, hate Jesus. (laughs) Can't get him. Can't get him into their heads. They can't compute him because they don't, understand what it is to come to a point of nothingness, of brokenness. 
Richard Raw puts it like this. He says, basically, um, every kind of spirituality, every Christian spirituality is, should be designed with this one thing in mind. And that is to lead us to, a, he says, to lead you to a place of nakedness and vulnerability. Yay. Where your ego identity falls away, where your explanations don't mean anything, and where your superiority doesn't matter. That's the point of Christian spirituality. <laughs> Does that sound fun? <laughs> as, in, as in, we don't come to church to have ourselves built up. Now, we also don't come to church for me to bash you over the head and be like, you're all dirty sinners. That's not the point either. But we come into the presence of God at the place of our weakness. And at our place of our weakness, we begin to meet the power of God. It goes deeper than that even still. Because if we think about Jesus again, think about Jesus. Think about the way that he saves the world. Just for a moment. Is the way that he saves the world a way of strength or a way of weakness? <laughs> is, it, is it more similar to Paul's first vision or more, more similar to Paul's second spiritual experience? It's more, isn't it? That we worship a God who was crucified in weakness. That the way that he saves us is by walking the long and lonely and painful road to the cross and being crucified on a wooden... I dreamt that I was getting crucified the other day. I, <laughs> don't, please don't get any ideas. It was really awful. <laughs> I don't recommend it at all. Um, and from my personal experience now, crucifixion really hurts, um, or at least the idea of it. Um, as, as is always the case with dreams, it gets to the point where they were just about to... Um, in my version, in my dreams, though this isn't how it happened, they were going to staple me through, through my chest onto the cross, which I thought was particularly mean. <laughs> um, but you'll be pleased to know I'm okay. It didn't happen. Um, it was all right. And you can, whoever can interpret dreams can come in and <laughs> translate that into my emotional pain later. That'd be really useful. Um, but, uh, but we worship a God who was crucified in weakness but who now lives by God's power. In other words, the whole pattern of Scripture, the whole pattern of the Bible, the whole pattern of basically everyone in the Bible who has a meaningful encounter with God is that through weakness comes power. Through, through our own death to ourselves comes life. That's why Jesus says, if you come to me, you have to die. You have to take up your cross and follow me. And he wasn't just saying, make it really hard for yourselves. He was saying that to actually follow me, to actually receive me into your life, you have to come to a place where you've got nothing else and where you realize that you've got nothing else. And that's when the magic, not magic, you know what I mean? That's when the stuff can happen. That's when, that's when we can start doing business. So Paul says, really weirdly, because he gets even more crazy, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Everyone say after me, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. You're not sincere. I can tell. He says, and he really means it. I delight in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I mean, mean, delight in persecutions. Like Paul, when Paul says persecutions, he's not just meaning like on Facebook, someone badmouthed, like did a bad comment on a post I put. Um, Like he means they threw rocks at my face. That's what he means. They threw me out of the city and I had no friends and I was left for dead. And I delight in persecutions. See, because when, where this gets to is that because it's happened to Christ, because it's such a 
pattern of the way the gospel works is that through death comes life. Through, um, th- through pain comes uh, victory, I guess. I'm not doing very good analogies, but you know what I mean. Because that's the whole way it works. Now, when I experience pain, when I experience being a victim, when I experience being persecuted, when I experience suffering or sickness or pain or death, I don't experience that as an isolated thing. I experience that as a part of a story that I'm wrapped up in. Does that make sense? And the story that I'm wrapped up in is Christ, crucified and resurrected. But just like Ezekiel, it's really hard to be stood up by the Spirit of God unless you first bow down. It's really hard to get resurrected (laughs) if we don't die first. It's really hard to get healed (laughs) without pain. And so there's this new beauty in all Paul's experience in his life because of this revelation that his suffering isn't just a meaningless extra. It's actually a part of something. It's a part of what God's doing. His vulnerability, his weakness, his idiocy, his patterns of thought that he just can't shake. It's, all, it's not there as an obstacle to his discipleship. It's not there as just something to be got through so that I can move on with God. No, our pain and our brokenness and our sickness is, a, is all a part of the story because it gets redeemed by God. Does that make sense? Good. Then I think I might be coming into land. When um, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Melissa told me the other day something that I didn't know before, which is that when her mum was very seriously ill, um, 12 years ago. Melissa's mum, some of you will have known her, um, died, I think, 12 years ago, almost exactly. And um, she was very sick with um, leukemia. And really interestingly, just as it, when it got to the point where, like, it was, it was looking like, okay, this is going to be it. The verse that Melissa got as a comfort that she prayed and she heard this from the Lord was this exact verse. Isn't that interesting? My grace is sufficient for you, with you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That at the point of our greatest brokenness, at the point of our greatest pain, we become most open. Now, church isn't always a place that we're really good at this, is it? Because we come here and however much we, <laughs> however much we don't want it to be like this, there's a little bit of, okay, what, what, what do I look like in church? How do I come across? I want to seem, I don't want, like, I don't want to seem too spiritual, because that's not cool. But I also don't want to seem too unspiritual. So I'm going to kind of, like, play that carefully. And the whole thing becomes a little bit of an ego game, doesn't it? And a little bit of a kind of, how do I not come back and be struggling with the same thing that I was struggling with over the last four weeks that people are starting to get a bit bored of? But actually, this is just a place where we can be totally okay with each other. Because we're all, we're all broken, right? What's not? We're all weak. We're all going through life. We all have this cocktail of success and beauty and pain and suffering. We all have these dysfunctional ways of thinking and dysfunctional ways of being and dysfunctional relationships. Yay! But it's in that place that we can just welcome the Holy Spirit and say, I've got nothing. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.
why don't we be quiet together? And then we've got a lot of time. I finished quite early. Is that all right? Good. Is that okay? Um, and let's just, yeah, let's invite the Holy Spirit. Well, as if we need to. <laughs> I always feel weird saying that because he invites us first, right? He's, he was here already. But Holy Spirit, we open ourselves to you now. And Lord, thank you for what you did in the life of, in Paul's life. And thank you for what you showed him. Thank you for how precious this experience was to him. Where he faced his own brokenness and weakness and in doing so, found your life and found freedom and found acceptance and found power and found resurrection. And Lord, that's really what we want. So we, we invite you, Lord, just to speak now, to speak to our hearts. And what we're going to do is just going to spend a little while in quiet and just ask the question, Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to show me? What is it that you want to do in me in this time? And just ask that question. And don't rush him. If you find your mind wandering, don't feel bad about it. Just <laughs> even wonder, like, oh, is this something? Is this what he wanted to show me? Maybe. And for some of you, it might be like, actually, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I don't want to go there. It's too painful to go there. Maybe what, you, what you're starting to think or, or feel is too painful. Um, and listen, you, <laughs> there's, there's really, he's very patient. <laughs> there's no rush. Um, but there is healing down there. And then just hear the voice of God, <laughs> which I know is the voice of God because it's right here. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It's totally sufficient. It's not just slightly enough. There's so much grace. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And hear him say this. When you are weak, then you are strong. When you are weak, then you are strong. Just like Pat shared earlier, these experiences, these pains, these things that we go through, these weaknesses, they don't just get turned around a little bit. They get turned around to the point that they become <laughs> a redeemed weapon for the Lord. Where we actually get to minister to other people, minister to them in their pain and weakness and brokenness. Maybe that's true for, for some of us here. Is actually what he wants to say this morning is, okay, enough working through it now. It's time to use it. It's time to use it. It's time to wield it. 